For those of you that don't know, there's a, there's a group of college students in Panama City right now. So you're the remnant that are staying the course in Auburn, not being distracted by things like beaches. But they, a lot of things, good things are happening, I hear, down there. Um, Kevin is a tremendous college pastor, and I hear the great things are happening. But I'm glad you're here this morning, and we're going to continue our study in the book of the Revelation. So if you would turn to Revelation 4, I'm going to start with a, a profound quote from Kevin Van Hooser. Now, I'm going to be done at 10.15 to 10.20 so that you can have some table time. So if, I'm not, if, I, if I haven't finished what I plan to, to speak on this morning, I'm going to stop anyway so that you guys can have some table time. So be aware of that. Probably somewhere between 9.15 and 9.20. My goal is 9.15. But here's a quote I want you to, to think about that, has, that I've thought about a great deal when I first read it when he published a book called Hearers and Doers of the Word. I think it came out like 2017. But here's what he says. The time, energy, and money we spend during our roughly four score years on the world stage is largely a function of the stories and images of human flourishing in which we believe and put our trust. I'm going to repeat that. The time, the energy, the money we spend during our roughly four score years on the world stage, he's saying we've got a short period of time on this world's stage. He says it's largely a function of the stories, the images of human flourishing in which we believe and put our trust. He is saying in this, this statement that all of us live by a narrative. All of us live by images and stories and narratives that have captured our imagination, that's captured our affections. And whatever has captured our affections really will drive our lives. So we go out on Thursday night and evangelize at Tumor's Corner, and those students are no different than you in this regard. A narrative has captured them, and they believe... Now, I'm not saying that all of them out there believe this. Some out there may be out there for noble reasons. I recognize that. But in the main, most of the students that go out Tumor's Corner on Thursday night believe that the key to human flourishing is found in sex, alcohol, and drugs. Every image bearer has been captured by a narrative, by a story that will drive everything you do. Now, one of the central purposes of Scripture is to free us from the false stories, from the false images and beliefs that we tend to trust in as natural idolaters that guide us and govern our lives. Now those stories, those, those narratives, those beliefs are generally intuitive. We don't give a lot of philosophical thought about them. They're just intuitive. And I'm going to give you a fancy term here. And the reason I'm giving it to you 
is because it's a term you need to think more about and perhaps even research. Those thoughts, those images, those stories that drive our lives have been called the, our social imaginary. It's a term called social imaginary that was coined by a philosopher named Charles Taylor. So, so how does this social imaginary work? Well, faith comes by hearing. And we know that from Scripture. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the Word of Christ. But what we hear as a pattern, we tend to believe. Whether it is true or whether it's untrue. Faith comes by hearing. And so the culture's truth narrative, it, it lodges its control story in us and that enraptures the eyes of our hearts. And that's what we see on the media. We see it in social media. We see it in commercials. That, that is the culture's truth narrative. And if our minds are not renewed, we will believe that narrative. And that narrative is going to control and govern our lives. Now... Informing today's social imaginary is another concept. I'm going to give you two terms today, but I want you to think about these terms. And I, I don't think I would share these terms with the, let's just say, the 70-plus the, the crowd. But these are terms you need to know as college students because I want you to be sharpened tools to engage your culture. Informing today's social imaginary, again, uh, the social imaginary are the intuitions we develop from the culture that we don't even think about. In other words, a fish doesn't know it's wet, right? A fish is wet but doesn't know it's wet. It's all he knows. Informing our social imaginary is another concept called the imminent frame. The imminent frame. Now, in previous generations... Life was characterized by the transcendent frame. Now, what do we mean by transcendent frame? That meant that intuitively, even an unbeliever believed there was something beyond him or her. Transcendent. That, that was authoritative over our lives. We may not be believers. We may, may not be born again. But we believed that there was something above us and beyond us that we were accountable to. That's the transcendent frame. Today, our culture is governed by the imminent frame. And that is the belief that this world is all there is. Uh, there is no authority in anything that lies beyond the material world. So I have to create my own meaning. All right? And generally, uh, the, the meaning I create are correspondent to the desires I have. So everybody is their own meaning maker. All right? That's where we are as a culture. And, and the Bible is on a rescue mission to free us from that. We need to think of the Bible as a document that is intended to rescue us from those idolatrous thoughts, from the social imaginaries of the world its idolatries, and its false worldviews. And the only cure to these idolatrous 
social imaginaries that the culture has given us is in seeing God for who He is. That's Revelation 4. That's where we are. That's where we're picking up today. Revelation 4. Now, this chapter has a context. You guys have been studying Revelation. And so you recognize this context. We know from Jesus' own words that there were some in Ephesus who had lost their first love. Which means there are believers who would be reading this document in church history that would find themselves in that indictment. There are many here, perhaps, who have lost their first love. There were some in Smyrna who were about to be killed for their faith. There were some being tempted by false teaching in Pergamum. Uh, there were some being, uh, who were tolerating a false prophetess in Thyatira. Uh, the church was dead in Sardis. They were persecuted in Philadelphia. And they were lukewarm in Laodicea. So that's the context as we come to Revelation 4. And, and so it's most likely that our spiritual states match one of these situations. And so this book, this chapter is written to the church and individuals in the church whose lives are going to correspond to at least one of those seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3. And so Revelation 4 is written so that we might behold the God who is revealed in Revelation 4. And we need this vision to enthrall our hearts because something is going to capture our hearts. We've been hardwired for worship and we will worship and and so if we do not worship the God of Scripture we will we will find a God replacement and that God replacement will be in the created order that's Romans chapter 1 and so all of us are confronted with things that that tempt us things that we see that tempt us away from the things that we do not see and so this text, Revelation 4, is intended to rescue our awe. To rescue our awe. Okay? Now, this passage falls into two parts. The first part is we see the one who is seated on the throne. That's verses 1 to 7. The second part, we see the, the, the worship of the one who is seated on the throne. And that's verses 8 to the end of the chapter. And so let's look at the beginning, the one who is seated on the throne. Now notice, after this, now what has happened prior to this? There's been seven letters written to seven churches, right? After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And so John signals a transition here in his book with this second of four vision reports. So we've already had one vision. Does anybody remember what chapter that was in? Revelation 1. That's exactly right. So this is the second of four vision reports and each of these four visions are preceded by this language of in the Spirit. 
So when that phrase, in the Spirit, is found in Revelation, that signals that you're about to get an, another vision. Now, now, this vision that begins here in chapter 4 is going to extend all the way to chapter 16, verse 21. All right? Now, this door in verse 1, notice a door standing open. This is the third time the word door has been mentioned in the book of the Revelation. The first time we see in chapter 3, verse 8. In verse 8, listen to chapter 3. I know your works. Now that's very comforting or it can also be disconcerting based on where you are spiritually. The Lord Jesus Christ saying, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door. Now, that open door is an open door for gospel ministry. And it's the Lord who opens up these doors for us, who sets these doors open. All right? So that's chapter 3, verse 8, the first time we see the word door. The second time, I think Kevin hit on this last week, chapter 3, verse 20. In chapter 3, verse 20, he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Of course, that is to the lukewarm church, Laodicea. And they had a closed door to the Lord Jesus Christ. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. This is the third time that we see this word door. And this time, heaven, heaven and its door is opened to the Apostle John. And it's for your benefit. It's for your benefit. It's for our benefit that this door has been opened. It's so vital because you have a social imaginary. You are living by a narrative that drives your life. And if the narrative of Scripture is not your narrative that drives your life, you have bought into a false story, a false narrative. And so it's to our benefit that this door is opened to John. Now notice what we see with this door as he walks through this door. Uh, the first, we, he essentially sees two things in the first couple of verses. Notice in verse 2, and I find this so comforting. At once I was in the Spirit, behold, a throne stood in heaven. Now, where does that terminology of throne mean? Throne means someone who is sovereign resides there. A king resides there. So the first thing we see here, there is a, 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 a throne. Sovereignty resides in heaven. Now, God's throne is mentioned 38 times in the book of the Revelation. Now, why is that important? He's writing, John is writing at a time when Domitian was the emperor. And Domitian was brutally evil. And it would have appeared to the social imaginary of the average citizen in the Roman Empire that Domitian was the one who was enthroned. And here, in the book of the Revelation, 38 times it's used to speak of God's throne 17 times in chapters 4 and 5. And so there is a throne in heaven, and it's not located on earth. That throne's in heaven. No matter what you might see, no matter what you might think, the throne is not here. 
The throne is in heaven. And the second thing we see here is that throne is occupied. There's someone on the throne. Notice, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. Our social imaginary, if we allow the culture to determine it, it would appear that no one is in control. It would appear that no one is sovereign. It would appear that there's no king. It would appear like the book of Judges. People are doing that which is right in their own eyes because there was no king. There is no king. Again, this, is, this chapter is intended to intercept our idolatrous social imaginaries. Those intuitions we develop from the culture when we don't renew our minds in the word of God. Now, this is reminiscent of Isaiah 6. I, I have found that chapter so comforting because it says, In the year Uzziah died. Now, why is that an important description in Isaiah 6? Because Uzziah was one of the greatest kings that Israel ever had. King of Judah. He resided as king about 60 years. From about 800 B.C. to 740 B.C. Now, he didn't end well. He became prideful. But in the main, as a pattern, Uzziah was a tremendous king. He was from the tribe of Judah. So he, he was functioning as king, as the Messiah, pointing to a greater one to come. So he was the son of David, far-off grandson, you might say. And in the year Uzziah died, it would have appeared that all hope is lost. In the year Uzziah died, he said, I saw the Lord, and he was seated on the throne. Again, it's, it's, those texts are intended to capture our idolatrous social imaginaries. The social imaginary of that day would have been, we have no hope. The king's dead. Uzziah has died. The great king. And Isaiah is given this vision to intercept that social imaginary. No, your social imaginary is wrong. There is one who's in control. There is a king, and he isn't dead. He is seated on the throne. That's what we see here in chapter 4. The truth that God is enthroned is intended to encourage a church that is marginalized by a world opposed. Maybe you have felt that way before. Go out on a Thursday night with us. You'll find out how marginalized the church is. And this text is intended to intercept that. Evil has a termination date. Wickedness has a termination date. So this is why chapter 4 is foundational for the rest of Revelation. For the rest of this book, you need to read it through the lenses. I, I'm at the age of 53. I cannot read without these glasses. It happened when I was 40. When I was 39, I was telling people, my vision's not bad. At 40, it got bad. And now I, I, I see the world through these lenses. The lens you are to read Revelation through from here on out is Revelation 4. 
In fact, I would say the lens by which you view reality is Revelation chapter 4. Before we read anything else in this book, John makes clear that even though the power of evil and, and wickedness is very evident and it must not be dismissed, there's one who's greater who reigns, who's in control. In fact, besides the symbolism of the throne, this vision has other indicators of God's sovereignty. Notice here, he says, I will show you what must take place after this. What does that indicate? I will show you what must take place after this. Jesus, who's giving this vision, Jesus can foretell the future because the Lord reigns sovereign over it. In other words, history doesn't consist of just what may happen. He's saying, I'm going to show you what will, indeed, what must happen. I think Psalm 103, I was in Psalm 103 on my reading plan yesterday. And in my reading plan, I, I read the Psalms twice per year. And, and in this particular chapter, Psalm 103, verse 19, it says, The Lord has established His throne in the heavens, and His kingdom rules over all. Do you know how comforting that is? Because my intuitions, that is my social imaginary, tells me when I see the chaos that things look hopeless. And the psalmist says the Lord, Yahweh, has established his throne and his kingdom rules over all. Now, notice in verse 3, we've got to get going because I told, I promise you, you're going to have table time. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian... And around the throne was a rainbow that harkens back not to the LGBTQ. They've hijacked this uh, metaphor. But back to the Noahic covenant where God promised to stage. There will not be a judgment on this earth as catastrophic as the flood until God's people are redeemed. God has promised a stage for redemptive history to be lived out no matter how evil it might appear, no matter what your social imaginary tells you, there will be a stage for God's purposes to unfold. That's what the rainbow of the Noahic covenant signals. And he sees this rainbow here. It's, it's quite remarkable right in the middle of this vision. He says, around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. So every, every Christian reading this would have been well-versed in the book of Genesis. And they would have been very aware, wow, that, that's the hope promised to Noah in the Noahic covenant. And around the throne were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. So notice there are 24 thrones seated around, and seated on those thrones were 24 elders doesn't mean these elders had the same sovereignty of God, but they do the bidding of God. And so when they go the authority of God, they, it's as if the sovereignty of God is coming to bear on every situation. And so who are these elders? It's not a big issue because I think there's a lot of debate on this, but I, I tend to think they're likely angels. 
Now, I don't know what Kevin's position on that is. Um, I, I'm not hard and fast on this, but here's the reason I think that. First of all, in chapter 5, verse 9, um, when they declare the greatness of the Lamb, worthy are you to take the scroll, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people, and you've made them a kingdom and priests to our God. He's, they don't include themselves. So it doesn't appear that these 24 elders were redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. That's one reason I believe these are angels. In fact, the book of Isaiah describes angels as elders. Second, uh, they are mentioned alongside the four living creatures, which are probably cherubim and other, in, and other angels in the rest of the book of the Revelation. So I tend to think that these are angels who are, were created by God to do His bidding. All right? Now, the primary function of these elders, though, is to worship God and to proclaim His worthiness. In this particular context, to judge. Now, notice in verse 5, it says, From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. I can't even read that without thinking about the Revelation song now. Y'all remember? Y'all know the Revelation song? Uh, forever when I read this verse I think about that because it was inspired on this verse and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire which are the seven spirits of God that's speaking about the Holy Spirit and his his perfections okay so remarkably um, the the seventh seal the seventh trumpet and seventh bowl that you read about in the rest of Revelation are marked by lightning storms the same thing we see here which communicates the awesomeness, the incomparability of God and the awe of entering into His presence. Why is that important? Because we've been hardwired for awe. And all of us will be in awe of something. And if we develop awe amnesia, we'll be on an awe search. And we will look to the creation to find our awe. So this passage, among many, is intended to rescue our awe. Now notice in verse 6, there's so much here, but man, time passes faster when you're preaching. And before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. Now the sea in Scripture speaks of chaos. But now it's like crystal. It's like God has tamed the sea. And around the throne, on each side of the throne... Four living creatures full of eyes in front and back. The four living creatures like a lion. The lion is the king of the jungle. The second living creature like an ox is the strongest domesticated animal. The third living creature with a face of a man. Man being a generic term for men and women. Humankind. The apex of creation. And the fourth living creature, like an eagle, the, the king of the air. So this represents all of creation. And, and the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around. Doesn't mean they're omniscient. But they're doing the bidding of God who is omniscient. And day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Now, so this brings us to the second part of this passage, the worship of the one on the throne. Now, there's three attributes here in verse 8 I want you to reflect on. And we don't have time to speak about them, but 
the holiness of God. What does that mean? He's set apart. He's set apart. And here's what I love about his holiness. Besides other things, his ways are holy. His ways are holy. Psalm 77. Um, In Psalm 22, it says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But then the very next verse, it says, But you are holy. In other words, my circumstances are not favorable. But I'm trusting you because your ways are holy. So I may not have chosen the circumstances I'm in, but you're holy. And your hand is on me. The second thing we see here, the second attribute, he's the Lord God Almighty. Now, that speaks to his omnipotence. Not only is he holy, he's all-powerful. His arm has not been shortened. There are some of you right now that are struggling with your circumstances. Maybe you you long to be married. Uh, Maybe you long to graduate. Maybe you want direction in your life. Maybe you have a a family issue that is just, it's consuming you. And your God is all-powerful. And your God is holy. Reflect on those realities. He knows what he's doing. He's good at what he does. The third thing, notice, it says, who was and is and is to come. He is eternal. Empires and cultures and your circumstances, they come and go, but the one is who is holy and the one who is almighty will be standing in the end. All right? Now, notice verses 9 to 11. We'll close this. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fell down before him who is seated on the throne and worshiped him who lives forever and ever. He's driving this home to us to sanctify our imaginaries. He wants us to be transformed from having a social imaginary to a biblical narrative that drives our lives. They cast their thrones, their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. By your will they existed. In other words, your circumstances are by divine design. God has a different plan for every, each one of us. We don't need to compare our plan to the, our, the plan of our roommate. But God has a plan. He has a design. He's in complete control of it. And he's holy. And and that is a comforting thought. And so the suffering church, tempted to drift, tempted to despair, tempted to compromise, is reminded here that God is the sovereign creator of all things. Uh, I don't know if your generation uh, enjoyed... Wizard of Oz as you were growing up like I did but in the Wizard of Oz there's this young girl named named uh, Dorothy and and she like John is in exile you know John's writing from exile and he's writing to a church that's in exile we're in exile in a sense this isn't our home and so she believes her hope is found in the sovereign one behind the curtain And she does everything she can to get to this one who is behind the curtain. And once the curtain is pulled back, this girl who's in a broken world in exile, under the 
under the dominion of the wicked witch sees that it's just a frail old man who is a fraud who just pushes buttons. That's the antithesis of what we see here. Here we get to see behind the door. We see behind the curtain. And we see the one who is truly enthroned. Who is creator, all-powerful, and holy God. Let me close with these thoughts. I wish we had time to spend more on it, but the next chapter is going to focus on his work of redemption. But it's enough just to reflect right now on his work of creation. Creation establishes God's ownership of all things. Where do I get that? Let me just give you one verse. Psalm 24, 1. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell wherein, therein. So it establishes God's owner of this place. He created it. That's what chapter 4 is centering on, God the creator. Secondly, it establishes authority. Where do I get that? Acts 14, 15. We bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth. Paul is saying in that text, he made the heaven and the earth. He has authority over you. He has authority over the entire created order. Find rest in that. And then finally, he's worthy of worship. Psalm 33, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the earth stand in awe of him. Back to Van Hooser and we close here. The time, energy, and money we spend during our roughly four score years on the world stage is largely a function of the stories and images of human flourishing in which we believe and we put our trust. Revelation 4 is intended to capture your imagination, capture your affections, so that you now begin to put all of your life's resources, your time, your talents, your, your, your treasures into this one story that is centered on the one who, who was and is and is to come, the one who is holy, the one who is all-powerful. It's intended to intercept our false social imaginaries so that we will live with an evangelical, biblical, theocentric imaginary. And that that imaginary, which is true, will drive our entire lives. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this passage. Forgive me for not treating it as it deserves. Lord, now as the students gather around their tables, I pray that what I have left out and what I should have emphasized in the passage could be brought out around the tables so that we, your people, might come to know you and love you more. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Discuss. Um, I, I, I guess Kevin is giving you all marching orders on that, right? You guys know what to do around the tables? Okay, good.